these things are incredibly complicated, but they keep podcasters in a job. Welcome to episode 400 of nine of Brews News Week. I am your host, sort of, back back in the hot seat, uh, Matt Kirkegaard, filling in for regular host Sabrina Kunz. And this week I'm joined by Ian Watson and Steve Brockman, who are our regular current co-hosts. Sorry, guys, I'm a bit out of practice with all of this. Welcome. Uh, good to see you both. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you both. So I have to say, I've really enjoyed, whilst I'm out of practice hosting, uh, I have really enjoyed listening to uh, points of view that aren't mine. Um, and congratulations on the way that you've been doing it. It's been some really great discussions. Sabrina's been great as a host, and it's been uh, fun to chat beer news with Ian. So I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, absolutely. Sabrina is off on holidays. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not doxing her by saying that she's probably somewhere warm enjoying a bintang in Bali. So we can uh, next week add her proof of the bintang effect uh, to the show notes and see whether it's actually a thing. But for this week, the news of the week, uh, been a bit happening this week and it started uh, last Friday. Uh, ASIC raises concern over uh, equity crowdfunding non-compliance. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission has formally notified crowdsourced equity funding intermediaries that it is concerned that companies using the mechanism to raise funds are not complying with their obligations under the Corporations Act. Uh, Bruce has learned of the concerns not through ASIC uh, announcing it to the public, but through an email that we saw that was sent by one of the intermediaries, Birchall, to its professional partners. That's a network of lawyers, accountants that uh, advise um, equity crowdfunders. And Birchall was urging them to remind companies of the importance of compliance, noting in the email that Birchall feels that a joint effort in assisting companies with these obligations is good for the industry. This email and this uh, noting that it would be good for the industry was despite Birchall undertaking at least two crowdfundings itself for companies that were at the time of the crowdfunding not compliant. Um, now, obviously, you know, again, I always put the little, um, uh, what's the cognitive bias, um, you know, where I'm self, self-confirming uh, my own views, but, um, you know, I've been banging on about equity crowdfunding for a while, very valuable mechanism um, for uh, businesses to find equity and to find, uh, you know, growth funds, but it's not free money. And, uh, you know, I I think we've been watching the number of breweries that have crowdfunded that aren't meeting just the very minimum reporting requirements, that they have to have annual general meetings, they have to have, uh, you know, file director's reports on the state of the business and also provide their... um, Financials. So the people that have given them money and are supposedly owners have some insight into the business. And uh, yeah, look, I, I, on one hand, a lot of these businesses aren't particularly sophisticated and uh, getting reporting is one thing. But when you've got the supposed watchdog, the, the, uh, they, they call themselves gatekeepers. When you've got the businesses that are supposedly the gatekeepers and have a certain number of uh, things that they have to go through to make sure that this there is, um, you know, some level of rigor around these things. Not even ensuring or not even enforcing because it's an easy check. Um, not even enforcing that the businesses that they're raising for are compliant, um, which is the nice term for not breaking the law. Um, you know, there's an absolute problem. Um, I raise questions of Birchall, uh, which is the largest crowdfunding last August. They didn't feel that it was necessary for them to answer whether it was appropriate for them to undertake raisings when businesses were non-compliant. And uh, anyone who read that article will have seen what their uh, you know, response was. Essentially, we meet our minimum legal requirements, um, you know, no more, no less. And we'll ask everybody else to make sure that businesses are compliant, but you know, we won't do it ourselves, seems to be the, uh, the, the, the message. Yeah, this was always an... In- God, that felt good to get off my chest. <laughs> I bet it did. Uh, this, this was an inevitability um, that given that those scenarios have existed, that at some point in time, uh, ASIC was going to start to look into it, how deeply they uh, and how quickly and how 
uh, hard they move on it is another thing that probably depends on the reaction of the community using these resources. Um, so it's probably a space we can watch with interest over the next little while, but uh, it, it was absolutely inevitable that um, some approach in this way was going to be made. For sure. And I think, you know, it's basic requirements. Annual general meeting is not hard to do. I mean, I've sat on community groups in which we have annual general meetings and you, you just do it. You get it over and done with. You put the paperwork out there. It's a basic requirement. In some cases, some of these crowdfundings have received millions of dollars and then to not do the basic reporting, I don't know. I'd feel a bit betrayed if I'd invested money in that company. Yeah, as I said, you know, it's, businesses need money to run and it's a, it's a way that you can get it. And, you know, if you want to take money and have no obligation, just do the old GoFundMe campaign where, you know, there, there is nothing, people give you money. The reason this mechanism is so popular is because it's more effective because people feel like they're owners of the business. And yet, you know, and, and in all of the um, crowdfundings, there are all of these promises made, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to, do, you're part of, you're an owner. And right up until you've got the money and businesses aren't doing it. On one hand, it's the responsibility of the companies itself. But again, when you see the, um, the, the, the businesses that hold themselves out to be gatekeepers um, that are meant to be enforcing, or not, not, not enforcing it, but just doing um, due diligence on businesses, letting them launch crowdfundings for subsequent raises when they're not compliant with the first, um, and I'm just going to call up the actual, uh, they, they've passed it on to their partners to say, hey guys, you know, re remind everybody because assisting companies with these obligations is good for the industry. They, they acknowledge the problem, but then in response to a direct question, do you think it's appropriate that you do crowdfunding when a business is currently in breach, you know, so hasn't provided its, its um, you know, financials. And you go, well, how can anyone meaningfully invest in a company when you don't see the financials? Um, you know, Virtual performs its services in accordance with its obligations under the CIA. So basically, we will do the minimum so as, so as not to break the law, but we're not going to in, try and ensure the integrity of the system that basically we skim 10% off. So mm. anyway, and actually, the, the other thing that you know, really bugs me about this is effectively ASIC, which is the regulator, is the watchdog. Um, you know, there was a story that came out three days ago in the AFR that uh, headlined, gone in 38 seconds, regulator using AI to reject serious criminal complaints. The corporate regulator who is meant to be keeping an eye on these things and who are the people that virtual point the finger at, you know, and so oh, it's not our job to regulate. Um, is using an automated system to dismiss allegations of serious wrongdoing by company directors in as little as 38 seconds. It's essentially using an AI phone system to vet calls to decide what it goes on. It, uh, you know, the, the watchdog is so thinly stretched that hundreds of millions of dollars worth of corruption uh, or you know, financial complaints is, is, isn't making it onto its uh, you know, whiteboard. So what chance is a you know, half million dollar equity crowdfunding? And if virtual aren't going to do the bare minimum um, over and above their own obligations, who is? So anyway, and it's, it all comes down to the integrity of the system. As I said, good to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on, uh, Victoria Bitter, uh, or, or the initial headline for this one is VB makes ABV play with VX. Um, in, an, uh, in a move to target younger adults leaving the beer category, Carlton United Breweries has launched a VB brand extension that emphasizes its higher alcohol as a, production, as a product feature. CUB has announced the launch of Victoria Bitter Extra, or VX, which goes on sale this week. The media release announcing the launch leads with the strength of the beer, noting it comes in 250ml bottles and has 6% compared to 4.9% in the classic VB. VX will be sold in four packs of 250ml stubbies, which contain 1.2 standard drinks each, it read. Um, guys, I don't remember a mainstream beer launch that you know, highlights and double underlines that, hey, we've ramped up the alcohol on this one. Actually, I was going back in my memory bank and there has previously been one. So Carlton Cold, back in the early 2000s, had Carlton Cold shot. 
So uh, okay. it was the red labeled uh, foiled top of the Carlton Cold. And as a young pup, I will admit, I used to drink a little bit of Carlton Cold because it was the cheapest beer available to me at the time. And when Carlton Cold Shot came out, it was all about it's a one whole percent extra in each bottle. The bottle size didn't change, which is interesting in this one because it's a 250 mil bottle. But yes, Carlton Cold Shot used to be back in the day. And, and I actually referred to in the article Forex uh, special special bit. There was six and a half percent, and uh, I, I, I quoted that. So, I, but I, I, God, I don't remember. I remember when Carlton Cold was launched, but I don't remember Carlton Cold Shot, which. I, I, I think what we're seeing is raising the alcohol on a product to get the kitties, and I'm going to call it, get the kitties drunk, yep. is a sign of desperation for a brand that's in decline. And there is another one as well, too. This is the one that I thought you were going to mention, Steve, was Tui's Extra Dry Platinum. And which still exists. It Ted. does. I, just, <laughs> I Googled it, and you can buy it from Dan Murphy's right now. Right. Insane. I haven't seen it survived. in 15 or more years. I understand that uh, Lion is going to follow suit, um, and we may see a little bit more on um, Tui's Extra Dry Platinum as well, um, because the brewing industry, you know, the, the big brewers are so desperate um, in their battle against the RTD makers that they, 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 they see that as the alcohol in RTDs has crept up, they need to compete on that rather than making beer more sophisticated or anything like that. They say, oh, well, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, you know, so become the, uh, you know, beer of weapon of mass consumption. It's it's also a very easy way to innovate too because um, these products, essentially all you need is the marketing angle on it, the packaging, because uh, I will make the assumption that the product essentially already exists because they're probably uh, doing – um, dilutions on the, the product post-fermentation. It's the most effective way to make uh, that sort of a beer in that sort of a volume is to make it at a higher ABV and then dilute back. Um, so it, it really is a product that already exists. It's, it's just a matter of getting it out to the um, getting it out to the market. Um, you know that your product is uh, you, that your consumers are probably not going to reject the flavor profile too much because they're already drinking it. Um, so it's a very safe uh, minor innovation to make. Yeah, I think it's also interesting too, the package size. So the 250ml bottle, uh, last time or last couple of times I've been to the bottle shop here, there's been a lot of these new RTD bar serves. I don't know if you've seen them, but it's, a, it's basically pre-mix RTD, whether it's you know rum and coke or whiskey and cola or whatever. But instead of being the usual... 355 mil can they're actually 250 mil cans and instead of being you know six percent or whatever they would be they're up at nine percent and the idea is that it's a bar serve so if you went into the pub and got a nip of alcohol plus a little bit of coke on ice it would be about that 250 mil volume so i wonder if the play here is the they're seeing a lot of drinkers move towards smaller beverage like i don't understand why you go to a smaller pack size some companies, um, I don't know about CUB and uh, Asahi, but some companies um, do have their own internal rules about the number of standard drinks per um, pack size, um, and it's their own internal way of minimising alcohol impacts or um, being a little bit more corporate, um, corporately responsible. So it may have something to do with that, um, but it, maybe it's more along the lines of what what you were suggesting too, because yeah, I've certainly seen those ones. A lot of um, the pre-mixed cocktail type drinks, uh, I, I get to see a lot of those um, come my way. Uh, do come in those those smaller packs, and yeah, trying to imitate more closely what you would get in in a bar. I, ha- I haven't seen the rum and coke and so forth in that, but I can uh, I can oh, actually no, I have I have seen some of the smaller. Uh, brand distillery ones, yeah, that are doing like gin and tonic and so forth. And instead of doing it in the old three seven five mil cans, yeah, are doing it in those smaller ones. So yeah, I, I have seen that. Look, I I think that the smaller bottle is because in the four pack, and this is where reading the media release, I'm, I was a little bit gobsmacked that they were so naked about it. Um, you know, you, you very rarely see the alcohol in the first paragraph, and every mainstream headline writer 
picked up on the alcohol. You know, record alcohol for uh, VB. Um, I think, you know, Man of Many, um, which is a classic uh, news site, basically said uh, VB goes nuclear. So it, it was a very clear call to focus on the alcohol. But then the bottle size in a four pack, and they were sort of saying 1.2 standard drinks, even in a 250 mil stubby. Um, but then the stubby pack, um, I think it was $16 a four pack. But in my Facebook feed, um, you know, I've seen there's a place up at Bundaberg in Queensland that I, that I just happened to follow only because um, they were the largest buyer of brew back when brew was still uh, selling. And so it was always interesting to see what discounts they had uh, brew on. And they were selling it, I think, 12 or $13 a four pack as a promotional deal. So, you know, and, and again, one of the reasons the, the, the sales reps that used to constantly send me photos of brew on, um, you know, on, on deep discount pointed out that these outerlying uh, areas of Bundaberg are places notorious for deep discounting to problem drinkers, um, you know, is the, 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 the business mindset. So when you see that's the call to action at a venue that people in the industry regard as being, you know, price and strength driven places. I, I think that that's where the small bottle is. You know, um, it's kind of shrinkflation. We can give you more bang for your buck. You're still getting more than you are in a full can of uh, 4X gold in this tiny little thing. And, uh, you know, it's called a throwdown. So the whole thing, you know, it, 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 you know on one hand it's business, but if you're trying to make beer look more premium, if you're trying to make beer look more sophisticated, um, which I would argue that a lot of the spirits-based drinks, quite apart from the alcohol, one of the reason drinkers are going towards them is because they seem sophisticated on some level. Um, and beer is just once again, which comes off a fairly low base, is again playing to where the drink that gets you there. Yeah, that is a, that is a big concern. Uh, back down, I'm just thinking another um, reason they might have gone to the 250 mils, and um, you sort of said it the word yourself there too, Matt. Uh, this might be a little bit of the Resch's effect there. Um, back in uh, my young days, popular amongst many of my friends were VB throwdowns, and it's probably every couple of years I'd hear from someone I know saying, oh, whatever happened to VB throwdowns? So maybe they're killing two birds with one stone here. We've got this new innovative higher ABV um, VB, and uh, we can put it in the throwdown bottles that everyone so wants to remember from 1994. It's got a bit of nostalgia play to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think there's also an interesting trend too. We're seeing, I read a lot of um, reports coming out of the US about kind of beer trends in general over craft beer, and you're starting to see the industry has always kind of pushed towards session in the last couple of years. But then it's starting to turn back around. I think some of the highest selling um, products by volume has been the um, New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger series and double IPAs have been incredibly popular selling in all of the different markets there. So there's now definitely a pushback within the US craft beer scene that maybe higher alcohols is back on the rise. Maybe VB's ahead of the curve here. Who knows? Oh, uh, no, it's here. You don't and think so? That's where they. No, well, I mean, CUB actually in the media release drew parallels with the alcohol in craft beer. The difference is craft beer is a much more expensive product to, to make compared to the mainstream beers. But then with the tax regime in Australia, higher alcohol beers are significantly higher. And, and that's why, you know, if you go back 10 years, CUB was willing, you know, not, they didn't deliberately hurt the brand, but they were willing to risk hurting the brand when they went to 4.8 and then 4.6 with the beer and, you know, did it. And if you'll remember Ari Mervis, the then CEO had to do that, you know, groveling apology, you know, we've heard you and we're sorry um, campaign. You might've been overseas when that happened, Steve, but yeah, sort of this very open letter to the beer drinkers of Australia. We've heard you and we're sorry that we took the alcohol down and they've had to put it back. But, you know, they, they did it as every other beer has, um, you know, lowered it because it, it's it's a form of shrinkflation. You know, the dividers in the Tim Tams get bigger. So there are fewer Tim Tams in a pack the same size. Um, they get to save money on the same size beer 
but just with that the all of their costs being built into to the excise so if they were willing to take that sort of hit for that saving on excise they must feel that there is a huge marketing you know a huge market for this beer because that's a big jump in alcohol you know the the the, the cost difference for these beers um will be significant so yeah clearly they think there is an audience for it um and any audience that is swayed by higher alcohol probably isn't approaching beer for flavor or you know quiet sophistication that's fair it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh the, the other versions died very quietly very quickly we'll see how uh how long this one lasts uh, in other CUB news, uh, Asahi Beverages has signed an exclusive partnership with entertainment company Live Nation. The deal sees Asahi Beverages established as Live Nation Australia's first beer and cider partner across concerts and its exclusive supplier of soft drinks brands, including Pepsi, Solo and Schweppes, to Live Nation's festivals. Uh, in a media release announcing the partnership, Asahi said that launching the multi-year partnership had seen live entertainment fans enjoy a range of Asahi Beverages uh, beer ciders including Carlton Dry, Bolter, Goat, Pirate Life, Four Pines, and Summersby. Um, you know, Live Nation has uh, a, a large number and uh, has also come into attention internationally um, thanks to Tay Tay, um, who sparked, uh, I think, US Senate investigations into anti competitive practices by the nation, but uh, apparently it's not so bad here. Yeah, it was interesting to read this one. I do like to go to a festival every now and then, and um, one of the festivals that was listed in that one is Harvest Rock, which I attended last year, which was a fantastic festival in Adelaide, first year of it. The disappointing part came, though, was getting there and realising my beer options were extremely limited and featured no South Australian-owned breweries. So um, at the same festival, they had a small section of people that were presenting boutique wine, um, and the value was pretty good. It was $15 a beer or you could buy an entire bottle of wine for $35. So me and my friends, we all ended up drinking bottles of wine during that festival. So, I, I mean, it's yes, it's good, I guess, for those companies that they've secured um, the Live Nation. And I know that it, Live Nation is now a, quite a big entity because I think it's emerging between Ticketmaster and some... Ticketmaster and, yeah. ...music venues as well. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm always in two minds about people signing big deals and locking other people out. I'm always the craft brewing. I always want to be out of a good craft brewery made by a local brewery at my festivals. But It is just business in the end, uh, a company looking for their best economic position. But it, it is um, making things more homogenous in what food and beverage offerings are to, um, to people. Uh, let's face it, there's some good beers um that are in that list there as well some beers that i'm quite happy to drink um but yeah you know knowing that you go to any event from them and it's essentially going to have the same offerings is is a little bit boring whereas i went and saw a band last night and i had uh five or six different craft beers um or probably more at, at my disposal um to to choose from there as well as some imported beers as well as um, rashes on tap, uh, which I was surprised to see in <laughs> Queensland, and wonder whether it really was rashes or just a decal. Um, but that was that, that was that was uh, from my point of view as a consumer that made things more um, interesting because I had had options there. Whereas even though there's uh, some solid, dependable beers through through this and some very good beers, if you go into a mall, you're going to have that same option time and time again. It's a little bit boring, and in, in but in my opinion. We've talked about tap contracts in, in the past and, you know, th this is one that I used to be really anti-tap um, contracts. But then as the industry grew, a whole range of commercial deals were done between growing craft breweries and venues to get that tap because to confidently invest in expansion, you know, you, you need, you can't be constantly chasing rotating taps. And when you've got the means to do it, um, you know, you do find ways to secure taps on a permanent basis. Um, and that just seems to be the way of business and the way, and, and the way of growth. I, I guess the when I wrote this one, you know, Live Nation particularly, because I was aware that there is this huge issue in, in, the, in the United States where they basically are a monopoly over so many of the, the, the live things. And that's 
at what point does good business cross over to being bad for consumers? Um, and, you know, we, we, we see that all the time in Coles and Woolworths. On one hand, you know, they make a point, you know, because of us, consumers are paying less in, you know, tough financial times. But one of the ways that consumers pay less is dollar of milk that massively changes the dairying industry. Um, and once an industry, once a supply industry is broken, it's very hard to bring it back. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll see that with craft brewers. As we've seen recently, not only do they have, you know, what it's 80% of the retail market between the two of them, um, you know, and a massive ability to control supply, but then they come in with their own brands um, so brewers can't even really invest in making their brand a premium the same way because if you've got a successful craft brand that's stocked in either of the big two, there is zero barrier to them creating an absolute knockoff of that beer that they then sell at a cheaper price. How do you compete against your biggest customer? So it, it, it's one of the, you can do PhD theses and people do on these, but yeah, I do find it's interesting that as soon as you get to that mega scale of the live nations um, and then they're signing the mega deals with you know uh, duopoly um, what what does that mean i also think too there's a there's a missed opportunity here because i think a lot of brands especially most festivals and stuff that'd actually be a point where they'd launch so even recently the make maker kombucha had a big push in which they pushed into a whole bunch of different festivals so Harvest Rock is actually the first time I tried to make, make a kombucha because it was there um, without having that access to try it in a, in a kind of a setting. It, it, a contract locks that kind of ability out. So yep. I think although it may be good for the consumer that they get a pretty consistent brand lineup, I think it's not good for the consumer in the long run because they miss out on product launches. They miss out on variety. They don't get to support local X, Y, and Z. So. The other thing that I guess we should throw in is that if you do have a huge business, and the airlines are an example of this, whilst you know I'm one of those people that hates walking through a regional airport and seeing Heineken on tap because you're thinking, well, what are you celebrating about your local community? But the flip side is the small local brewery, you know, finds it very difficult to supply the volumes that a big, you know, contract needs quite often. And, you know, without contract brewing or things, and is that the same thing? You know, it's, these things are incredibly complicated, but they keep podcasters in a job. <laughs> Talking about, which I'm all for, by the way. Lord Nelson, uh, which is, a, I have to say, a brewery that we, we don't hear um, a, a, a lot from. One of, I think, the Australia's oldest existing brew pub or continuing brew pub. The Lord Nelson has raised the legal drinking age. Australia's oldest pub, the Lord Nelson, and I asterisk Australia's oldest pub because I don't want to get into that fight, um, has launched a campaign to highlight the traditional nature of its beers in a move designed to differentiate itself in an increasingly crowded craft beer market. In the campaign designed to elevate the position of its three sheets pale ale, the Sydney brewery is a shooing shoeys uh, and wants to make beer more mature by raising the drinking age of its flagship to 35 plus. Lord Nelson Managing Director, and I'll add and character, Blair Hayden, said in a media release the brewery had been focusing on creating quality beers that are refined and well-balanced for 30 years. Three Sheets Pale Ale remains our flagship brew and is testament to being true to ourselves and not following trends and in styles, he said. Um, and I noted in the in the article that these sorts of campaigns where you want to contrast other beers are potentially fraught uh, because it looks, it looks like you can be punching down or making fun of. And I really think that they've done a great job, if you look at the video, of walking that line and sort of saying, look, yeah, if you want your uh, raspberry marshmallow beer or your sparkling beer, you know, your, your um, sparkles beer, go to it. But that's not for us. And adults want something different. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really liked, in the same way as you guys talked about the Bolter commercial, really loved what this was saying about what their brand stands for, um, as opposed to, you know, what perhaps other um, younger breweries might be wanting to do. I thought it was great and I was actually the opening line to it is are you sitting down 
which I was, <laughs> drinking a beer because I like watching videos on product launches. Um, so that's exactly what I was doing. So I feel like it was just targeting me directly. But it was a great ad. I think, like you say, kind of definitely walked the tightrope of not punching down or making fun of. And I think uh, advice to any craft brewers out there is always never um, hang any kind of dirty laundry out there when talking to any kind of customer because it eventually will always come down and bite you in the bum. But the um, they've done a really great job. Um, have they also had a rebrand recently? Because I thought the logo looked pretty pretty mint. The packaging certainly has been uh, refreshed when you look at it, um, but the logo looks the same. Yeah, so even with the rebrand of packaging, they could have slapped this straight on the side of the can printed or straight on the side of the carton is my point. But they've actually made a habit yep. of going, no, we're going to go around and stick it. So I think that's also good as the action of it. Um, so, yeah, I think this is great advertising. Yeah, I think it's pretty clever. It's leaning into what they do and what their brand position is uh, and showing that what they're doing is actually differentiation. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clever, pretty smart, uh, fun way to do it. It feels as though they're poking fun at themselves but doing it in a way that highlights um, positivities for their brand and for their for their, their beer. And, yeah, I, I, I really like it too. Because there are a couple of examples I highlighted where – you know, VB, speaking of VB, a couple of years ago made fun um, of, you know, the metrosexual movement, um, which was basically <laughs> having now trying to win back the younger <laughs> drinker, you know, 10 years ago, they were making fun of the people that they're now trying to woo back um, by completely, you know, missing that the, the world moves on. And the other one was, I think, Cause, um, which what cause puts rice in its beer instead of corn or they're calling out AB InBev for, for something and you're going, look, you know, none of that makes the beer industry look good. Um, you know, it's not celebrating anything positive about it. And uh, yeah, that, that, I, I think that they really did it. Now, Matt, if you were going to raise the uh, legal drinking age of your beer, how, <laughs> how would you go about that one? Guys, can I say that I love. I've loved having a couple of weeks off, and I and I enjoy it. But the one thing is, you know, pimping you guys out. You know, we're paid to do the ads, and hearing you guys so seamlessly do it. And uh, you know, thank you, Ian. I was, I was actually going to say, you know, one another one thing that I don't like uh, is pimping out my guests <laughs> to read the ads, Ian. But you've done it anyway. <laughs> but Ian, if I was to pimp you out to do an ad. Which ad do you think I'd be pimping you out to do, given that you've started? <laughs> I think you'd be pimping me out to do the Rallings label stickers and packaging ad because beer can labels are regarded these days as the new mini billboard of the beverage industry. They say it a lot as an advertisement you can hold in your hand. The label is the genuine conversation starter. The label is also providing a new voice to the designers and artists with a very public canvas to present some ter terrific artworks and some tongue-in-cheek quips. Just brilliant. Seriously, though, to get all the specs right so your can or bottle looks at its best at all times, call the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on 1300 852 235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au to see how they can help you make your brand sing. Bravo. Bravo. Every time, <laughs> Ian. I love the deep voice. I love the it, it, the way you say just brilliant every time. It's it's bellissima. <laughs> That's all I'm going to do now is the Rowling's ad. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, now, moving on. And actually, another story that I, I really liked uh, was, I think it's Mary Beck Council launches brewery and music trials. Uh, you know, another one. Two trail maps have been, have been launched in Melbourne's inner north, guiding residents and visitors through the area's breweries and music venues. Launched by Marybeck Council, the first Love Marybeck tri uh, Trail features 12 wineries, distilleries, and breweries, including Alchemy Brewing, Co-Conspirators Brewing, and Coburg Brewing Co. The second trail features 12 live music venues and record stores across the Marybeck region, both maps outline public transport options to navigate to each business. Um, really, really enjoying seeing local municipalities um, getting behind their uh, local businesses. And uh, it, it's great to see beer um, included in the pantheon of you know local food and drink. Yeah, live music, record stores, beer. Are, are they just uh, target marketing this one to me? Um, feels that way. <laughs> uh, a few things that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, that sounds very cool. I like the sound of that. 
And the website's actually pretty clean and clear too. If you if you go through and have a look at their website, what they've done is they've actually just taken a Google map and then tagged every business within it and then gone, all right, what do we have? Or it looks like to me that this is what they've done. They go, oh, what do we have inside here? And they're like, oh, there's a brewery trail and oh, there's a record trail. And I think that's a really good way of doing things. I'd be very surprised if they don't release more trails within Merrybeck um, that relate, have businesses maybe like, you know, nurseries and plant stores or, you know, something along those lines where they can kind of get kindred businesses all within the same trail. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great example of what, you know, other local councils could do. And should be doing. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, state governments should be doing more. Um, you know, uh, my bugbear in Queensland, as you know, is the Queensland state government lured a brewery from overseas, and which is fine, but it, it's not like IT where you're bringing skills or you're bringing something that we don't have the ability to nurture ourselves here. You're just bringing in a competitor. And when one competitor is massively advantaged over the other ones, that's a, that, that's a problem. Um, and we're not seeing a lot of... Uh, support in Queensland or you know, most states um, for the, the the local brewing industries. That competitor also appears in that Merrybeck Ale Trail, by the way. Ah, okay. Really? They do, yeah. Interesting one. I don't think we discussed it last week, the 2022 Australian Craft Beer Survey results. Did you guys talk about that last week or did it come out after? I think it came out after. A yeah. study of over... 14,000 craft beer drinkers has revealed a significant change in consumption habits with a big increase in alcohol-free beer consumption. Created by craft beer retailer Beer Cartel, the 2022 Australian Craft Beer Survey is a comprehensive study undertaken by this, with Australian craft beer drinkers. It's the sixth year that the study has been run with a survey conducted uh, from July to September 2022. Annual, annual alcohol craft beer consumption increased significantly from 15 to... T- Actually, I'm going to start, stop reading there because that, like that's that's where I think there is a whole lot of conflation about this. Uh, like a self-reporting survey is interesting in determining attitudes, I think. The way that this is being presented is that more people are drinking craft beer or more people are drinking alcohol-free beer. It's it's a very selective sample of people who are already immersed in craft beer. And I think a much better metric of whether people are drinking more craft beer uh, and more alcohol-free craft beer would be beer cartel releasing their sales results which is actually a, a, a snapshot of sales as opposed to people reporting yeah like i've, I've been drinking uh, alcohol free i've been drinking more alcohol craft free craft beer because i'm trialing it i'm not buying it i'm not changing my drinking habits because of it i'm, I'm curious to see it so my answer would be yes but it's not moving the sales dial appreciably at all and uh a lot of the, you know, it's, it's a really important annual snapshot, but I just don't see some of the data points that they're using are, are meaningful ones over sales data, um, you know, that, that, that they could just as meaningfully report, but obviously will be giving us an insight into their business. Yeah, that was always is a, um, a difficulty and a, and a problem with a, a survey such as this. The data can get accidentally skewed, and the crafting of questions in surveys and the way you put it out there can really determine your results. Uh, and it's the same as any data set. Um, when you look, numbers don't lie, but it's how you present numbers and how you get information about numbers. You can use them to paint um, various stories. Uh, back from there. Um, and interesting looking at some of the results in some of the categories, and this is not a criticism of it in any way. I love I love the idea of this server and I, I participate in it each year. Um, and I certainly look through the results there. Some of the results in some sections surprised me. Um, and I would like to look back at those results in comparison to uh, the likes of the Hottest 100 um, with engagement. So the results for some items in there really surprising compared to what I know the volume or um, the the frequency of those those things might have been, and I find that surprising. And what that then actually says though is probably that that venue has greater engagement, and even though others um, venues or brands might have uh, lesser sales, they are, are not generating as great 
uh, as great an engagement as as the other ones that have that have done better in that in those results. If if what I'm saying makes sense, totally does. And I think when you look at results from a craft beer survey or from a hottest 100, you've got to contextualise it. So I always think of this one as like, let's take the litmus test and take the quick vox pop almost of who are the people that are really passionate about craft beer. Because in the end, I mean, the 14,000 that respond are generally people that are pretty passionate about craft beer. I feel like if you did the same survey at the front of Dan Murphy's, you'd get a very different response. Um, and that's, I guess, the point both of you have made there. Um, I, I'm with you too. I'd be very interested to see how this lines up with the hottest 100, um, in, especially in some of the categories. But there is merit into some of the information for sure. You know, I, I'm always interested to see um, which brands are considered favourites in each state, which brands have kind of pulled through and are at top of mind um, when people answer these surveys. So there is merit in having the survey every year. Um, but I agree with you, Matt. I think maybe sometimes the information that comes out of the survey it can be presented a little wrong in the case of the uh, alcohol-free here. Well, it's it's probably more so how we're interpreting that information back um, might yes. be a better might be a better way to to put it because as I said the numbers don't lie it's how we paint our own story with those with those numbers. I'm fully aware that a lot of times I sound very very cranky about some of these things, but we're also at a bit of a focal point um, where we get 70, 80 media releases a week, and often they're saying the same thing, and often they're PR generated. You know, I got one from uh, you know me and you the app, you know the the ordering app, um, and it's used in a small number of venues, and yet they're making pronouncements about the market, and again drawing, uh, talking about alcohol free, talking about X, talking about Y, um, and yet when they say the most popular beer in Queensland, it's Felons, um, Felons Crisp Lager. Now Felons Crisp Lager is only available at one venue in Queensland. It just happens to be the biggest venue in Queensland. So, you know, when they're holding out Queensland's favourite beer is Felons, it's a highly skewed data set. Um, and yet the media pick it up and, and they don't question. And same here, you know, like 32% of respondents, now these are respondents that are, you know, engaged in the craft beer industry um, that have found of the survey through people that supply, presumably, um, beer cartel um, have consumed an alcohol-free beer in the last 12 months, up from 15% in 2020. There has been unprecedented focus on alcohol-free beer over the last three years. I've never seen a segment. I've never seen an you know even craft beer generally as an entire category hasn't received the mainstream media attention that alcohol-free. And I'm I'm actually surprised it's not 100% um, of the population haven't tried an alcohol-free beer. And if 32% of a subset of respondents have tried one um, in the last 12 months, <laughs> that that's to me, that actually says that alcohol-free beer doesn't have a huge market um, as opposed to, gee, isn't it growing massively? Perhaps we could look at this as this is the point then where um, what they might do for the next survey is add supplementary questions on from there so we can qualify those results out. And it's like, yeah, you may have tried it uh, within the last 12 months, uh, but how often have you repurchased um, this category of beer? So now we can see that there is a movement and we can get qualification on that on that movement from here. And look, I don't mean to disparage the survey in any way. As Steve said, you know, it's good that they do it. Surveys, um, you know, random surveys that generate, um, and I hesitate to use the term more meaningful data, but if you phone, you know, 5,000 Australians at random over the age of 18 and ask them the same questions, you'll get a different response. But that is a massively um, more expensive survey to do um, to get that data. And so any data point, I think when I see things like um, this survey and some of the other ones, the concern for me is that sometimes it paints a distorted picture for an industry that makes decisions based on these results. And it is so widely and unquestioningly uh, celebrated that it adds a layer of truth or a layer of um, value to it that becomes almost a, a feedback loop um, to, to confirm itself at a time when 
uh, craft beer is under you know huge challenges and uh, you know i think a clear-eyed analysis of some of this is really really important before we get to other news uh brewery of the week now i've had a little bit of time off uh so i've been able to visit some breweries so bluestone yeast who can supply pitches of yeast from one liter to a 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter, whether you are after a one-off pitch or you are looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03-8518-3172 and talk all things yeast. Um, now, uh, this week I got out to a new brewery in Brisbane called Hiker, Hiker Brewing Concern. Phil and uh, Dan Venema are, are behind it. Great little brewery out in Salisbury on Brisbane South. Classic industrial shed, small brewery, but really, really welcoming space. The local community had, you know, really seems to be embracing it, um, you know, in its early days. But more than anything, the beers on launch are just excellent. You know, really good versions of the the beers that they're trying to make. And you know, for too long. Um, a lot of small breweries took a while to dial in their beers, but these guys have got it uh, right out of the gate, um, it feels. So, um, yeah, if, if you're in Brisbane or visiting Brisbane, get along to Hiker Brewing Concern. Both um, Phil and Dan, um, it's not their, their first time um, into a brewing role. Uh, so Dan ran his own brand for a while there. He also spent time working for um, uh, Ballistic um, and Phil uh, is actually a graduate of the um, TAFE Queensland and um, uh, used to work for uh, Black Hops as, as well. So they both certainly know. He still does, I He think. still does, yeah. Uh, they both certainly know one end of a mash paddle from another. I haven't been there since it opened, but it was up the road, for, just up the road from my previous employer. So I, I dropped in and said, said g'day um, to him. It's been a long time coming for him and I'm super happy that They've got it open, and I've been hearing some great things about uh, the the beers that they had on tap there on the on the weekend. It's fantastic news to hear yet another brewery starting at a really high quality base. That's what every brewery should just be aiming to do. So, congratulations to these guys. Absolutely. Before we move, uh, see if there's anything else anyone wants to throw in. Just uh, the podcast, really interesting one this week, if I can say it about my own interview. Matt Brindleton um, from Firestone Walker. Um, he's probably on a plane around about now heading out for the hop harvest. Um, he'll be here for the High Country uh, Harvest Symposium. Um, and so anyone who hasn't got tickets yet who wants to get down there, well worth hearing him speak, uh, maximizing hop impact uh, in, uh, in, in your beers. Um, and he's certainly someone who can speak very knowledgeably about that but we had a great chat about hops evolution of craft beer where we're going what's next um you know i I was riveted for the whole time and uh i wish i could be in the high country and uh yeah thank you for hpa uh, for organizing that for us to chat to him before he um got down here great interview and you just get the impression that matt's forgotten more things about hops than you'll ever probably learn right he uh was a hop chemist at one point. That was one of his early jobs. So. His first job, yeah. I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but um, I think that'll be on for my um, uh, uh, for my trip into town tomorrow. Mm. Oh, it was a yeah. Really, if you enjoyed the Pete Brown one, which was a very different one, but again, somebody who's got a long, somebody who has the same passion for beer that he's always had, but has had a long career. You know, to to see that passion, um, and because he he, uh, I'm trying to think, he brewed it. Duval, because he had an exchange, because Firestone Walker has the ownership, so he spent uh, I think 12, 18 months in uh, Belgium and uh, talking about that, and it's, you know, just love his passion and found it very, very restorative uh, myself. You know, hearing people like that. Probably, yeah, probably should say just a quick update on uh, the um, uh, administrations. Um, Ballistic uh, has its adjourned meeting. Uh, resume tomorrow um, at the time of recording this so we may have an outcome um, and know the fate of the workers and the fate of the business Um, interesting to see that the I think you talked last week about the details of um, catchment brewing that bought the old Mount Tambourine Brewery bought the Fortitude and Noisy Minor brands 
um, and has got a network of pubs that they're building. Is was the mystery, um, you know, investor. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether that gets voted up. And no updates on Tribe, which I think had just gone into administration last week when you guys recorded. So uh, you know, obviously, when there's uh, fact-based news that we can report, um, we will do that. Keep an eye on the on the uh, website and the newsletter. Um, I think Sabrina had just gone live with the new website that was her baby last week. Um, as you'd expect, a few little teething problems um, that have affected the newsletter and other things always happens, um, but the news is still there um, and the newsletters will be coming out. Um, anything else anyone wants to say, plug or promote? Oh, I don't know. There's a pretty good result in the uh, craft beer survey uh, in the podcast section. Did you have a look in that section? <laughs> like I said, the data is pretty can be skewed in these things, you know. And when when Matt Kierkegaard is the only person that votes in the podcasts, um, it, it really helps. Well, there's at least well, three I of us. Did, I, I forgot to put in my uh, survey responses, so I'm, you know, hard pressed criticizing it when I did when I you know if you're not involved. But um, I, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it would it would hurt a little bit if we weren't number one um in in a way but at the same time i, I guess as a prof, you know well semi-professionally produced as the best we can podcast or you know you kind of you you, you don't want to toot your horn too loudly because um you, you don't win it's it, it, it's nice that people listen to us and uh you know so the people we don't promote it we don't do anything other than people who are aware of the the, the website and people listen to it and they come back and uh you know again I value that the people that, um, you know, email, listen and respond, which is anyone who's hearing this now um, and listen, you know, as, as frequently as, as, as you can. Um, that I, I, I think is the uh, survey result that, that I like. Just like if I was a brewer, having my beer, you know, being pulled through retail chains is, is, is the, the, the number one reason we do it. But thank you for uh, bringing it up and saving me from having to uh, blow our own horn. It's all good. I love the results. Um, yeah, but otherwise, uh, look, uh, Sabrina will be back next week. So potentially uh, I'll, I'll go back to uh, listening. Um, Long time speaker, first time listener, um, which, which I've been enjoying. And so congratulations to you both. And thank you for uh, being part of this uh, uh, little thing we call Bruise News Week. Fantastic. It's a pleasure. pleasure to do it. Yep. And that wraps up another week of news. Your hosts have been me, Matt Kirkegaard, Ian Watson, and Steve Brockman. The show is produced by Vivian Topalovich and edited by Joanne Helder. We thank Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging and Bluestone Yeast. And this week, HPA for making Beers of Conversation possible and making this episode possible. Thank you all for your contributions by email, text, phone. Don't forget, I think uh, Sabrina mentioned last week that there is a link that we're putting into the show notes that you can post your questions and we can play them. If you want to leave some message or feedback and we can hear your dulcet tones um, and, and drop it in, please do that. Look down there. It will be a link in the show notes to do that. Otherwise, listen to the Matt Brindleson chat. Next week, great chat with B. Derbidge, who I wanted to find out about Bolter, um, a little bit more about the origins of Bolter, and uh, it was a really, really fascinating chat. So uh, look out for that next week. And uh, with that, we're out. <laughs> <laughs>